Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Zach Ziegler, in for Christopher Conover. This week, a look at black history in Southern Arizona. Tucson and the rest of Southern Arizona have always been places of notable ethnic diversity. But the contributions of many non-white residents are often left out of the history books. A new organization aims to change that for one group. The African American Museum of Southern Arizona opened its doors last year on the campus of the University of Arizona. The organization was founded by Beverly Elliott, a lifelong educator who's been involved in museums elsewhere in the country, and her husband Bob, a local businessman who's also one of the most prominent players in the history of the U of A men's basketball program. I spoke with Beverly about the museum, and we started with where the idea for it came from. The idea basically came from a question from a seven-year-old, our seven-year-old grandson. Um, At the time, he actually had entered the pandemic in kindergarten. So you can imagine a kindergartner who is used to doing ABCs and going to recess. And now he's sitting in front of a computer for hours. So as grandma, a retired educator, my daughter just said, hey, can you come over and help with the kids? So I did, a third grader at the time and a kindergartner. So it rolled into pandemic, still going, first grade. Now he's seven, first grader. Teacher says, let's write an assignment on African-American hero. He's listening to me talk to my friends back in Michigan. They could not open the museum back there. So he says, wasn't that where you find information about, you know, famous people that, you know, did great things? And I'm like, yeah, it is. He finally looks at me and goes, well, where's the one in Arizona? From the mouths of babes, huh? (laughs) Yeah, out of the mouths of babes. So I look around, friends check with the Smithsonian, they come back and say there is a George Washington Carver Museum in Phoenix. That museum is primarily focused on what was called the School for Colored Children back in the 50s and the 60s during when schools were segregated. And that museum had not been open for some time. So after doing some research, I go back, tell my grandson, oh, hon, you know what, there's not a museum here. He's like, what? Do you mean that black people didn't do anything in this state or where were what was everybody at? And I was like, no, it just means that there's not a museum or one space where you can go and find out about black people in Arizona or Southern Arizona here around Tucson. So he thinks and he looks over at me and goes, well, you work for that museum back in Michigan. I think you should start a museum and I'll help you. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> So the biggest trick, I'm guessing, when starting a museum is building up that initial collection. Where do a lot of the items that you're exhibiting and the items that I'm sure in the future you're hoping to exhibit come from? Well, the interesting thing is we kind of did a little bit of a survey. Even though my grandson wanted this museum, we went out and talked to a lot of people, talked to them on the phone, Zoomed with them and said, hey, what do you think about us starting a museum? Um, They were like, this is wonderful. Well, when you tell people this is what you're going to do, the word spread throughout the African-American community very pretty quickly. We're only 4% um, African-American in uh, Tucson and Southern Arizona area. So it spread very quickly. We started getting names of people. People started calling us saying, I have this or I have that. And so our basic collection began with a gentleman named Frank Bothwell, who uh, was a soldier at Fort Huachuca. And he wanted to make sure that the Buffalo soldiers were represented. So he donated this amazing collection of prints by famous uh, artists. 
And from there, it went to a friend who called a friend and said, hey, there's a woman who makes the slave code quilts. Um, and she had heard that from her great grandfather of how this code uh, based on different patches and how they were placed on a quilt was like a GPS for runaway slaves. And she donated the quilt. And not only that, a video to go with the explanation. And she dressed as a slave woman and talk, talked about her family and how this code goes. Uh, Fred Snowden collection, uh, Stacy Snowden, former Rincon High School grad, U of A alum. Her dad was the first African-American um, coach, African-American coach at a major college or university. Um, so she wanted to, you know, donate her dad's things, her dad's past, mom's past. Uh, and then we have a couple of social justice issues that we stand up for. Um, and one of them is the Crown Act, um, which is basically about hair and texture uh, discrimination in particular African-Americans and the inability to get jobs or be treated fairly. The fact that these are personal heirlooms, I'm sure of, of great meaning to some people and they're they're handing it to you what's that tell you about the black history of our region or or black history in general well and that's basically what we've been hearing especially from the older population um they're saying we've been marginalized we've been deleted we've been you know nobody cares and so as soon as they found out we were doing, for example, oral histories, we are going to be, we have, I think, maybe about 15 of them that are on these large screens in the museum. Uh, we have legacy stories on a large screen uh, in the museum. And those are legacy stories are those stories that you tell about your mom or dad that's passed away, but they had impact. And every person that I've called over 75 is like, when do you want me there? We have a lady who's 92 and I said, do we need to come and get you? She said, no, baby, I'll get a ride. <laughs> I'll find a way. I'm going to get there. If you're going to tape it, I'm going to bring my stuff. And, you know, we, a lot of people, like you said, um, want to entrust us with their things. And then there are some who are like, oh, I'm not ready to give it up yet. So we do photos of their items. So we digitize that. So when they're telling their oral history, you can still see what they're talking about. So one of the things that we are finding out is that, yeah, people have such personal attachment to their items. And we absolutely respect that. So one of the things that we tell everyone when they're giving us a gift, the deed of gift, we do let them know that it will be stored properly according to museum standards, the right humidity, the right light, the correct light, temperature, all of that is really important in, in storing any type of collection. So what's the biggest piece missing from the wider society's understanding of Southern Arizona history that you hope this museum can tell? Well, one of the things we want people to leave, we have, we have kind of two models. One is we are a movement, not just a museum. What really is behind so much of this is that we want people to leave saying, I didn't know that. And we are just really weaving African-American history into what you already know to be history. Um, for example, we've, heard that uh, President Roosevelt came out to, you know, solidify all the parks and uh, get things going in Southern Arizona, along with before him, President Harrison. But if you look at any pictures of who led though the presidents through the mountains, it was the Buffalo soldiers. If you see the pictures, they're not there. So we have sometimes been deleted on purpose, but oftentimes left out. We found pictures with them in those 
you know, with them showing these expeditions with the presidents, but we had to really dig deeper where they didn't crop us out. So one of the things we want people to know that, hey, you may not know this. How did the bus bus system get started in Tucson? Most people don't know. It was an African-American woman named Quincy Douglas. And you may have heard of the Quincy Douglas Rec Center. It's out on Park and Third. It's named after her because she was out to help people get food. Where she lived at, there, was, there were no roads. It was dirt. And she went to Jim Click Sr. and said, hey, you got some raggedy vans. Let us use them so we can get these people during the monsoon not to be filthy dirty when they get to work, walking through mud. He said, sure. She's charging them a penny. So she basically started Suntran wow. <laughs> in Tucson. So there are so many cool stories that I've been exposed to. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. The museum is currently located in the University of Arizona Student Union. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing this isn't where you'll plan for it to be in the future. What's your ultimate vision for this? Well, I think our, our future what the way we're looking at is is twofold one we want to make sure that we are intergenerational in other words there's so many things that are going digital and then you see the 80 year olds come in actually we've had i think four senior communities come through as a part of a tour and they're really excited because you can look at the screen and hear it or you can read something where today we had 50 kids from i think gilbert high school and they had their phones out they want to know where the qr code is Although one of our, our biggest hopes is that there's a possibility that the university will build a cultural center. And when that happens, we will move to a slightly larger space. We're at 1,100 square feet, and I could fill every nook and cranny of that right now. But what we're planning on doing is kind of uh, having a few permanent exhibits. But like for this month, it was Black History Month was kind of our major exhibit. Next month, it's Women's History Month. So next month, we will feature people like Margaret Campbell, who was the first black woman to be published in the state of Arizona writing a book. And she lived here in Tucson. We'll be switching some of those things in and out. And um, that way we can kind of showcase, keep things going. But that cultural center will be ideal because we might get a little more space. What's the thing that you can't wait to show people that you have that you haven't gotten to show them yet? Uh, get, give us a little tease here. <laughs> well, we have a um, a couple of pieces of art. Uh, one is by Ruth McCrane, who is a famous African-American artist. She was actually uh, out of the uh, New Orleans and New York area. She um, painted primarily uh, kind of like religious scenes. Um, and we have a painting that's probably about four feet by about three feet. It's a pretty big piece. It's on plywood um, because, you know, you had to paint on what you could get hold of. Um, and it is an amazing piece of art. We have a piece of art by a gentleman named Joe Bourne, who is a local artist um, who donated, once he heard about the museum, he was so excited. He made a heart with our colors of our logo with a poem by Maya Angelou underneath this wax. It's stunning. So there are some things I'm really like, yeah, I want to get those out there and show those. Um, we will slowly get to that process. So I'm going to wrap this up with the thing that I am excited to see in the exhibit. Someone in my family has had U of A season tickets for the men's basketball games as far back as I can remember. My grandparents, my dad, my uncles would talk about getting to see those Fred Snowden teams that your husband was a part of. Um, 
some people may give a little audible sigh right now as I start to dive into sports. Uh, tell me why this story is so important that you're dedicating some room in this limited space to it. Well, it's going to be him, but there's going to also probably be Willie Williams, who was the first ever African-American hired in the United States in any sport. He was here at the University of Arizona. But um, with Fred Snowden, I think that he brought so much charisma to the town. Uh, he made Tucson into a basketball town. And it was just so interesting to find out from the guys who were here before Coach Snowden, but they also played for Coach Snowden. They were like four and 20. They were struggling. They were in Bear Down Gym. They never had more than a thousand people. Coach Snowden steps in town in March of 1972 by, I want to say at November, they were almost done with McHale Center. They opened their season. It, they sold out Bear Down with 3,000 people. In February, a few months later, McHale Center is ready to go. You go from 3,000 people in a gym to 14,000 people, and he sells that out. I don't know how many people could just say, I step into a program, and within six to eight months, I not only change the shift the program to a winning program, but I sell out the gymnasium, a new gymnasium. So, I mean, that's pretty awesome to say that we have that in Arizona, because a lot of people that I've talked to when they're like, Fred Snowden, oh yeah, I know about him. Well, do you know he was the first African-American coach? And they, you get a lot of, well, no, wasn't there somebody in Detroit? No, maybe that was LA. No, probably New York. No, Tucson, University of Arizona. So we're really proud of that fact. It was just a wonderful thing. I mean, I loved him dearly as well. Um, and he, he was such a sweet man, sweetheart. And um, he's from Michigan, where I'm from. So I'd heard about him before. And I did not know, but he was also the first ever African-American assistant coach in the country at the University of Michigan. Well, great stories. Uh, Beverly, thanks for spending some time with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's, I'll, I'm just always so excited to be able to spend time and talk about the museum, but more than that, to share some of these amazing stories um, of Southern Arizonans that have done some amazing things. That was Beverly Elliott, executive director of the African-American Museum of Southern Arizona. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Zach Ziegler, and for Christopher Conover, we'll be back next week. We're looking at black history in southern Arizona. While we often think about historical figures as people who are long in the past, an important black person in Sierra Vista's history is still around. In fact, longtime educator Connie Johnson was honored for her decades of service to schools in the area this week. She served on the Sierra Vista Unified School District Board for 40 years and worked at the Fort Huachuca Accommodation School District for 45 years. Summer Hom has more. In a community that tends to be as transient as Sierra Vista is, long-timers are hard to come by. But it's these hidden figures who dedicate themselves to making the community better than it was when they arrived who carry with them a beacon and a ladder, shining the way for others and helping them rise up. One of those figures in education and civil rights in Sierra Vista is Madeline, or better known as Connie Johnson. Since she first came to Sierra Vista in 1969, when her husband was stationed at Fort Huachuca, Johnson spent 25 years teaching at General Meyer Elementary School on Fort Huachuca and served as principal for an additional 20 years. She says that education is in her blood, as her mother, father, and grandfather were teachers. I just love the kids and enjoyed seeing them progress and work hard and 
During that time, Johnson also served on the Sierra Vista Unified School District Governing Board on and off for 40 years. She says as she first joined the board in 1981, at which time teachers were frustrated and were on strike. Johnson said that the complaints surrounded the board not taking the teachers' voices into account, and she was encouraged by her peers to run. Johnson's educational activism was fueled by her own experience of segregated schools and choked educational opportunities. Coming from Florida... I was in a town where it was still schools for blacks and schools for whites. Where I went, in a little town in Chipley, Florida, uh, you could only go to eighth grade. And if you want, if it was time to go to high school, you, you couldn't go to the high school there. The high school was just for whites. Additionally, she also served as one of the founding members of the Greater Wachuca Area Branch of the NAACP. She said that the branch formed in August of 1969 amid discrimination and racial profiling complaints from black soldiers stationed at Fort Wachuca. She says that housing discrimination was a prominent challenge. We had uh, some people that would come and they would want a house. And this one couple, and they wanted to live in Sierra Vista. When they went to try to get this house, the people told them, even though it was advertised, it wasn't available. What they did on post, they got someone to that was not black to go and check on the house. And when they did check on the house, they found out, yeah, the house had not been sold and it was available. They just didn't want to sell it to anybody black. She says that the branch would coordinate with the commander on Fort Wachuca to resolve most discrimination issues. Johnson's mark on the community is notable, as former colleague and SVUSD school board president Yolanda Boutte says that Johnson's contribution to the educational community was outstanding. She has been a moving force in the boards. She has done so much for education for all students. Um, It's been her life goal to help educate and make sure that there was equity as she educated and also as she served on the board. Boutte, along with her fellow board members, presented Johnson with a plaque for her service with the district during a dedication ceremony on Wednesday at the Rothery Educational Service Center. The dedication ceremony comes nearly a year after Johnson resigned from the board due to health issues. Dimitri Symington says that he organized a dedication ceremony for Johnson. He first met her through the Greater Wachuca Area Branch at the NAACP, where Symington served as a youth president. And it was like, well, you know what, let's honor Miss Johnson in life, right? A lot of times people wait until people pass away, and then they'll honor them and do something like that. I'm like, no, let's honor her in life so that she can see that we appreciate her, we appreciate the impact and the investment that she made. He says that Johnson's contribution to the community is powerful. She is truly about the work and about the people, and it shows. And so when you just look at how gracefully she's led over the years and brought people together, I don't know if I know another local leader who has done that for as long as Ms. Johnson has. So I think the way that I would really evaluate is where would this community be without Ms. Johnson? More than 50 people attended Johnson's dedication ceremony on Wednesday. Sierra Vista Mayor Clea McCaw, who was not able to attend, wrote a proclamation declaring February 22nd, Connie Johnson Day. For The Buzz, I'm Summer Hom in Sierra Vista. We close this week's show with an interview from our archives. Lola Rainey is an attorney, poet, 
teacher, and social activist, and that lens gives her a unique view of Tucson's history of housing discrimination and segregation. She spoke with AZPM's Christopher Conover. If you're coming from someplace else to Tucson, you have one perception. And that is, wow, there's all this open space. People can move, they can do this, they can live everywhere. And that's pretty much the case if you have resources. If you live in Tucson, you have a different perspective. If you grew up in Tucson, you have a different perspective. You can see that there's a racial divide in housing. We know that our schools are some of the most segregated schools uh, because of housing patterns. And why is that? Now, I know that people say, well, that's because uh, people choose to live, de facto segregated. People choose to live with each other. Mm, yes, but I don't think that, that after all this time, because people like to live in a lot of different places, that you should be able to visibly see a color line that exists in a, in a city as big as Tucson. We should have a lot more integration, a lot more mixing of things. Those are not accidental situations. They reflect policies and practices that continue to reify white supremacy and to shift economic and political power from one group to another. Let's talk about black neighborhoods in Tucson. What are the historically black neighborhoods and do they still exist? They do in some areas, but most of them have disappeared. Uh, we were talking about the Meyer-Dunbar area as one of the earliest, around the 1900s, earliest black neighborhoods. And that's one a lot of people have heard of. Yes, right. Meyer Street had a, was almost like a red light district, but they had a hotel, they had restaurants, a number of black-owned businesses were located there. And it was, it was in an area of the downtown, old downtown, that was considered to be probably slum-like. But um, Dunbar, which is where the school Dunbar is, was also uh, connected to a small black community that was across the railroad tracks. And then from there, there was also uh, A Mountain, which was called, they called it Little Africa. A Mountain was, was homesteaded by a black family. And then they in turn parceled those uh, acres and sold them to other black families who were able to then build and own homes. Because you have to understand that Tucson was a very segregated and racist community. Black people were not allowed to live in houses in certain communities. There was, first of all, there was restricted covenants. You could not sell to black people. And so since black people could not own land, could not purchase homes, um, they were forced to buy land in places where nobody else wanted. So at the time when A Mountain was homesteaded, it was a just desert. It was nothing there. And it was a place nobody wanted. And that's where they were able to build. And over the years that that grew into a community, uh, there was also the Relito Morana area. Arizona was had one of the big cotton producing states in the country. Marana was a farming community, and black folks stayed there as uh, migrant farmers, and then some of them stayed on and ended up moving into a, a community called Relito, which was predominantly black, and it still is. Things changed, and the best, um, when we start talking about the Sugar Hill area, which is on Grant and, and First, uh, you start seeing black folks moving into homes that were owned by white people, but who had moved out and they were able to get financing. So for the first time after the Fair Housing Act passed and people were required to now provide financing and access to uh, money so that black folks could actually buy well-constructed homes. The Sugar Hill area is where a lot of up-and-coming black folks moved. That's what's called Sugar Hill. It was an upgrade. You also mentioned uh language and deeds and covenants, and we've seen that where houses cannot be sold 
to black families, to Jewish families. How did that past practice impact the neighborhoods of today? Well, I think that when you start to see where people live and um, also the type of wealth that families are able to accumulate based on the value of their properties, families that had homes in areas that started out being restricted to certain well, a particular race, particularly if that race was, was white. Those areas became desirable. They, they grew, they appreciated, whereas the homes of people who were, who were living in areas that were undesirable, where they were redlined, that meant that their wealth accumulation was impacted. So, for example, black people have like earned 60% of the, um, let's say, the earnings of white people now, but they only have 5%. 5% of the wealth of white people. A large part of that is due to the segregated government housing policies where they pumped lots of money into creating suburban housing for white families, lower, lower uh, working class and middle class white families. But by policy, they would not provide any of that type of financing for black people. That's what those covenants really did. It was a barrier. It was an economic and opportunity barrier. Is Tucson a community or is Tucson a city that has a bunch of historically racially based neighborhoods that have formed little silos? I live in Brownville. I live in Brownville on 22nd Street and Alberta. That's Brownville. <laughs> and you know how you can tell that? Because of our access to things like stores and access to even the type of um, technology services that we providers that were there. When you go across Broadway, there's a huge difference in the the quality of services, the types of businesses that are located, the types of access you have to technology, everything changes. Uh, if I want to order different types of foods and restaurants, I want to do that, I'm going to have to either get on a bus or I'm going to have to drive to another area away from where I live because people have made a decision that this is not where we want to put our business. It's not where we want to put our hospital. It's not where we want our doctor's offices aren't there. We put those places in areas uh, where people with money have access to. We are not putting money into communities that traditionally have been mostly brown. You mentioned crossing Broadway. On the north side of Broadway is the University of Arizona public school land grant supposed to lift everybody up. Does it make a difference on the north side of Broadway when it comes to housing? No, and it doesn't because what's happened is the University of Arizona is one of the major gentrifiers in our community here because it, it continues to expand. And where it, when it needs to expand, it does what people with money and power do. They find places where they can get cheap land. And where are those places? And areas where there are lots of generally poor people. I am very upset with the university's gentrification of the historically Black South Park area. When you drive down 22nd between Park and Keno Boulevard, you see the new student housing there. I grew up playing with people who had homes in that area. That was black. That was a black area. That's South Park. And Public Gardens Hispanic and the Vistas, which is on 36th and Campbell. There was all these very connected neighborhoods. They're also going to be a little big technology center. And just the arrogance and the lack of vision infuriates me because I think of what could be, what could be if we had a real partnership, if we had a real collaboration between the people in the neighborhood and this university. Instead of displacing people, we might have created an environment that would have attracted people, brought the new people in, and saved those neighborhoods. 
in Tucson, in the words of the Fair Housing Act, how do we affirmatively further fair housing? How can you change people's hearts? Uh, that, is, takes, that takes a lot of time. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. Because the truth is that um, as, an, as an attorney, I think that one of the most difficult parts about discrimination is understanding that uh, behind all the laws are individual choices. Someone is choosing at a conscious level to take something from someone that they know they deserve, that by law they're entitled to. But I'm going to cheat you because I can. So those are personal choices, individual choices that that are that we try to battle by saying, well, so if we find out that you did it, we can we can penalize you, we can hold you accountable. But you know, but by then the damage is done. So it just comes down to what kind of people are we? What kind of community are we trying to create? And and unfortunately, I mean I've been in communities that do work hard at fighting against these types of things. People are conscious, people are committed to making a change and speaking out. And you know, those are communities that create these wonderful places that people wanna live. And Tucson has some wonderful qualities, some wonderful things, but we have a deep, deep seated history of racism and housing segregation that continues to impact the lives of too many of our, our, our neighbors and we see it, and we have not done anything about it. We've not hold, held our, our leaders accountable for their lack of vision or lack of, of, of spine, backbone. I think we just get comfortable with the status quo. All right, well, thanks for sitting down and chatting with us. Thank you for inviting me. That was community organizer Lola Rainey talking with Christopher Conover. That interview was recorded in 2019. And that's The Buzz for this week. Find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Thanks to The Buzz production assistants Samantha Larnett and Phil Howard, as well as AZPM reporter Paolo Rodriguez for all their help on this week's episode. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Zach Ziegler. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.